Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. What you missed this week. I'm Caroline Hyde. This podcast has some of our favourite interviews from the Daily Show after the market close that I co-anchor along with Joe Weisenthal and Romain Bostic. What you miss on Bloomberg TV? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. We're in the middle of earnings season, where investors spend well an awful lot of their time poring over corporate results. Aswath Damodaran, he's the Kirchner Family Chair in Finance Education and a finance professor at the NYU Stern School of Business. And he's been writing a blog post about how these corporate reports and regulatory filings have gotten longer and longer and longer over the past few decades. He says it's, well, not necessarily a good thing for investors. Professor Damodaran joined us to talk about his findings and explain why he thinks we're having a disclosure dilemma with all of this additional corporate data leading to even less information. I think we've lost the distinction between data and information. I mean, annual reports, 10Ks, filings have all become data dumps. And in a sense, it's deliberate. I mean, I I think of how companies approach disclosure, the way a wayward Catholic approaches confession, which is, uh, I'm going to sin all week, then I'm going to confess at the end of the week. And because I've confessed, it's all off the table. So in a strange way, the fact that companies are allowed to disclose so much seems to have given the license to behave really badly. How much of this, uh, Aswath, is the companies just basically complying with the rules? And how much of this is maybe just them, I guess, just trying to cover uh, their bases, for lack of a better word? I think it's a mix of the two. I think that the accounting rule writers need to stop being so helpful. I mean, I know their intentions are good. But they, in the process of trying to help us, they're kind of essentially contributing to this phenomenon. But I think it's also in the hands of the company. And I'll give you a very simple contrast. Why does it take Coca-Cola 250 pages and it's 2020 10K, whereas it takes Apple less than 80 pages to do a 10K for the same year? I mean, clearly they're covered by the same rules. So <clears throat> what is it that Coca-Cola is disclosing that's that's taking the extra 170 pages? Aswath, you, you sort of... Previously mentioned that you think it allows them to do worse and worse. Are you somewhat insinuating that the shorter the 10K, the less they're trying to hide in some way? What is Absolutely. it? Absolutely. I'm not even insinuating. I'm stating it directly. I don't you know. It's, it, it's, <laughs> so you think me, Apple behaving the, well I, and Coca Cola isn't? Yeah. When I pick up a prospectus that's 400 pages, my first reaction is what are you trying to hide from me? I mean, it should not take any company 400 pages to describe a business model, put out their financials, and tell me what they're going to do with their IPO proceeds. So I, I, you know, I, I, I know it sounds strange, but the longer disclosure is, the more likely it is that it's going to contain stuff that you don't want to find out about a company, and they're hoping that you never read it. So uh, it's interesting that that we talked about pouring over disclosures. What happens when investors are faced with these data dumps, 400 pages, is they actually stop reading. And they go back to what I call mental shortcuts, which is basically they make up stuff like, you know, let's look at uh, adjusted EBITDA multiples and let's not even read the rest of the analysis. 
Maybe Coke buried the secret recipe in there yeah. and no one has ever <laughs> noticed because of all those words. But in all seriousness, sort of like, can you build an investment portfolio on some of these ideas? Like, could you build a quant screen where you look for clarity <laughs> and brevity in, uh, in, in, a, in, a, uh, in SEC filings and build, find a, a sort of like outperforming uh, factor? I, it might not be a bad idea. In addition to screening for growth and risk and cash flows, Maybe we should screen for number of pages in a 10K. It sounds facetious, but actually I did, I mean, about 15 years ago, I did a study that showed that every 100 additional pages in your 10K reduces your price to book ratio by 0.3. Every 100, so basically what's happening is as you, as you start adding more and more stuff to your 10K, you're telling me that your company is more and more complex and complex companies are just much more difficult to value and invest in. So might not be a bad idea. You know, they're, let's, they're, let's partner on this. Yeah. I think we could, we could li let's partner on it and license. Sorry. There's this also this idea here of, I guess, kind of the feedback loop too, in terms of the type of details being disclosed. And I guess the relationship, I guess, that the street has with some of these companies. Kind of explain that a little bit more here and why you think that should be, that might be a concern. I'll use one area where disclosure has, has increased massively over the last 20 years, corporate governance, right? Sarbay and Oxley created a whole host of corporate governance disclosures. This was in the early 2000s. Let me ask you a question. Do you as a shareholder feel more powerful at companies now than you did 20 years ago? I don't. Because here's what happened after that disclosure requirement came in. Companies started to have multiple class of shares, restricted stock units. I mean, in fact, companies, I think, are worse at corporate governance now, but they disclose all of it, hoping that nobody reads it. Does this moment in the market remind you of any time, you know, there's a lot of inflation talk, but rates are very low, a lot of ex excitement still about growth. You're an encyclopedia of the market. So I'm curious, when you look overall at, uh, at investing these days, does anything call to mind or is this truly uncharted territory? I, I think it's unusual simply because we've never had an experiment like the one we had last year, an experiment we didn't want to run of shutting the global economy down. I don't think anybody quite knows how we come back. And I think all year we've seen this tension play out, tension between the expectation that the economy was going to come back strongly and the worry that inflation would come back with it. I think what's changed in the last few weeks is that people are starting to worry about is growth going to come back the way it is, partly because of the Delta variant and partly because some other numbers are not coming in as expected. And worries about inflation continue to be out there. So I think this duel between real growth and inflation is going to continue through the rest of the year. And, you know, uh, I am old enough to remember the, the early 80s when we actually had to fight inflation and how much pain that created. And I just hope that we don't take inflation too lightly. Of course, you're known at NYU and outside as the dean of valuation. And so, therefore, when you're looking at valuations at these levels, when we are still basically really near record highs, hmm. do you feel that the only way is down when you're looking at this sort of inflationary pressure? I think inflation can never be good for stocks. I'll be quite honest. I've never seen a, an, a high inflation scenario work out well for stocks. I know people can paint these examples of how companies can do well with inflation, but I look at history and I look at whenever inf unexpected inflation has reared its head, stocks have been hurt every single time. So I can't think of a scenario where inflation comes back and stocks continue to go up. So I think for, for stocks to stay or rise, inflation fears have to go away. 
And I can't see that happening near term. So I worry about that. Uh, to me, that is the biggest worry right? and that would concern me with these markets. I wonder about the disconnect right now, Aswath, between kind of what we're hearing from uh, big investors, the market participants, if you will, and people on the ground. We saw this sort of play out mm -hmm. uh, at the Jay Powell hearing this week where a lot of members of Congress talked about the anecdotal stories they were getting from constituents uh, about having trouble uh, paying for their uh, grocery bill or going to restaurants or doing just normal things here. And we talk about inflation being less a number and more a feeling, more an issue of sentiment here. Right. Is there a way where I guess these two worlds can coexist where maybe people on the lower end of the income scale are feeling this pain, but the people on the higher end can maybe work through it, dismiss it and still I guess, profit, for lack of a, a better I, term. I think rather than lower and upper end, I think it really depends on your faith in the Fed. Mm -hmm. I, I have, you know, for the last 12 years, argued that we've put this, this I think, un, unnatural or un, unreal belief that, that the Fed can do whatever it wants, that the Fed can come in and keep inflation at 2% if it wants to. I don't share that feeling. In fact, I've called the Fed, um, or the Fed chair, the Wizard of Oz, basically, mm. that they have no powers, but their power comes from the perception that they have power. I think central banks play a very dangerous game, and they act like they can keep inflation under control. And right now, that's why I think you see such a big divide in markets. There are people out there, especially younger people, who seem to be, and for me, younger is, is you know, 50 years old, you're still younger than me who've never been through an inflationary episode, who think that the Fed can keep inflation low if it desires to keep it low. And I don't think the Fed has the power to do that. So to me, that's the biggest divide. Do you really believe that the Fed can keep inflation low? And I don't think it can. So we need to be careful. Obviously, you know, there have been many scares. There was a, you know, there was the whole period post-great financial crisis when we went mm -hmm. through this. It's transitory. It turned out to be transitory. There are costs to being wrong. There are costs historically to being out of the market, which tends to rally throughout almost any macro environment and bounce back right. quick. How do you think about, okay, yes, there is a risk that inflation picks up, that our uh, belief that the Fed can control it may be uh, uh, unwarranted, so to speak. But how do you think about the overall risk of, say, like missing out on what historically has been a market that mostly just goes up? Now, there's a reason I'm not in the bubble camp, which is, you know, they're, they're, they've been very active for the last decade, which is every time you've got the market hit a high, it's the bubble. Uh, you know, I believe that markets are, are priced really richly. I think they're dangerously high given inflation. But at the same time, I agree with you. Staying out of markets is not an option. So I think we need to find a way in which we can stay in markets and get some protection in case inflation comes back. And that's a position I put myself in as an investor. I'm worried about inflation, but I'm not going to freak out, sell everything and buy gold or Bitcoin. It definitely is not going to bail me out. What is then if what we used to think of as an inflation yeah. hedge is gold and what digital gold has been talked up as being isn't the right yeah hedge i think that that part of part of the part of what you need to do is what you talked about which is look for companies that have that are less exposed to inflation than others every company is exposed but some there's a reason i think tech has made a comeback in the last few weeks i mean started the year doing badly but it's made a comeback because let's face it the big tech companies have far more pricing power than most of the manufacturing companies or consumer product companies we have around us 
So in, you know, if, if, if there's the old adage of the strong getting stronger, those Fangam stocks are looking awfully good to me right now. I mean, I, if I had to pick stocks, I'd go back to those stocks, you know, and, and hold on to them simply because they have the power to pass on pricing, you know, pricing increases through to their customers. And that might be what separates the, hmm. the winners from the losers in this game. Do you worry about any of the, the changes or the push, I, I should say, uh, amongst uh, people in Congress, people in Washington, uh, for greater regulation of some of these companies, not just in terms of their size, but also really in terms of the reach and a reach that, to a certain extent, has provided some benefits when it comes to deflation? No, I think that, that risk is clearly there. I mean, I think the regulatory risk, and it varies across the companies, I worry less about it with Microsoft than I do with Amazon. The reality is that Amazon is so feared by so many people now that there's a vested interest, at least, on, even among the part of businesses, to find a way to bring it down. So with Amazon, I think it's a real and present danger. You've got to worry about the regulatory risk. But with Microsoft or Netflix, I'm less concerned. So I think it is, an, it is a risk, but it varies widely, even among the big tech companies. Yeah, I was just going to ask you further about that. I mean, we were just talking about, okay, the S&P 500. It's only down 1.6% from its all-time highs, hardly anything. A huge aspect has been this rotation or the, the durability mm. of uh, big tech. And you mentioned uh, some of the risks that you see there. But by and large, I mean, like, this tech story is incredible. It's been People have counted it out so many times. By and large, does, is there anything that's changed that would make you think overall that that uh, area won't continue to uh, show uh, leadership? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that that in many ways, what we're seeing is uh, a shifting in the economy towards, I mean, I tell people, look at now, think about how much time each day you spend in the ecosystems of different companies. Yeah. And you're gonna see the market caps of these companies reflect where we spend our time, where we spend our money. And I think it reflects the reality that lives revolve around these tech companies. Mm. Very quickly, Aswath, you just said don't use gold or Bitcoin as you know, an inflation hedge. How worried are you when you go from a corporation level to look at crypto on a balance sheet? I think it's insane. I think it's absolutely insane. I mean, I think even if you think Bitcoin is the place to be, you have no business as a company putting your cash balance in Bitcoin. I mean, that, I, mean I can't believe a board of directors can be allowed to get away with that and say that's our, that we're doing our fiduciary responsibility. I think it's insane. I, I just don't understand it. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The global art market is booming. Demand for everything from those so-called NFTs, non-fungible tokens, all the way through to jewelry, and it's fueling record sales. Christie's recently released a key performance takeaway from the first half of the year, and it was strong. The auction house had sold $3.5 billion worth of art so far this year, with total sales outpacing pre-pandemic levels by 13%. Christie's CEO, Esquilon Karuti, joined us to talk through the results and tell us why he thinks art customers are coming back in their droves. Exactly. Very strong rebound on the art market. Global, 
Last year, very strong demand, but the supply was more challenging. This year, in the first half, strong demand, very resilient from everywhere, especially Asia, and also strong supply. And the two together, <laughs> we came to this uh, recalled uh, H1 for Christie's, and, and we are back at a higher level than pre-pandemic. So it's, it's, it's a complete turnaround. You talk about that supply. What is in demand right now? Well, the demand is, is, is really global and uniform across categories. That's what we have seen in the first half. But it's true that everything that relates to 20 and 21st century, modern art, contemporary art, design, uh, NFTs, jewels, luxury is very much in demand. That's what we have seen. But, well, listen, two weeks ago, we, we sold in London a drawing by Da Vinci for a very strong price. So it's, it's also for more classical categories that we have seen a very, very resilient market. Hell of a bear coming in with a stellar price tag. Talk to me about London because many were hand-wringing Brexit going to be an issue in terms of the art market, has it been? Well, it's not an issue, but it's a, ch a real challenge for us because uh, Brexit means more complexity. Mm -hmm. When you export from the EU to sell in London, it's much more complicated for our clients. But we really reacted in the best way. We made the life of our clients easier. We played also on the fact that we, we have auction rooms, not only in London, but also in Paris, Amsterdam, Milan. And altogether, the performance for Europe has been very strong and, and positive in the first half. You say 30% of buyers are new. 31% of these new buyers are millennials. What are the new young crowd? What are they telling you? Well, um, they, are, they are telling us many things. First, they are interested by, of course, uh, the, uh, you know, the uh, uh, cutting edge art, uh, you know, contemporary art. And, and they, they drove us to change the profile, profile of ourselves. For instance, this year we invented a new way of segmenting ourselves, creating a new category 21st, you know, to address really this new demand. They are telling us also that they want to see a more diverse art market uh, with new artists, uh, with female artists, mm -hmm. uh, with female auctioneers. Mm -hmm. And in this first half, we have more female auctioneers than men auctioneers, which is you know, good news also in, in, a, in a traditionally uh, a very inward-looking and, and, and conservative uh, category or industry. So that, that's what these new uh, clients are telling us. Yeah, when you've been formed in the 1700s and now you're having predominantly female auctioneers, that's Absolutely. really something to stand for. I, I'm interested, Guillaume, in... We talked a lot about, say, the Beeple NFT auction. That was such a landmark sale and brought everyone's attention to what this so-called NFT is, the digital art. Now, the people who are buying, there were, I think some of the statistics were amazing. From this particular auction, you saw, what was it, 90% of those bidding were new to you as clients. Absolutely. Absolutely. Are they staying with you? Are they continuing to buy? And what are they continuing to buy? Well, that, that's what we want. And, and that's what happens, uh, for instance, one of the direct underbidders for the Beeple NFT you were talking about, two weeks later, he was active in one of our classic cell and he bought a major work by Picasso. So we are trying really to also, uh, you know, uh, extend what they do. And we also want to convince people who are traditional collectors buying fungible art yeah, they get that, that NFTs are interesting because it's a real... Uh, uh, you know, category that pre-existed to the people's sale uh, with great artists. And, and what we've done at Christie's is connecting these two words, you know, and that, that's what we want to do with these clients. You had a great statistic about female auctioneers, and you, of course, have a goal of more gender balance. Just six years ago, it's incredible. It was just 66-34, yeah. and now, of course, highlighting more towards that goal of 50-50.
How do you maintain that? As we've talked on this program, we're trying to turn a, a moment into more of a movement. How does it look like to you in the future? Well, I think, uh, uh, you know, we have no choice, but we are not forced to do that. We are doing this because it's right. One more time, it's what we need to do. That's what the market is, is, is really wanting. And, and uh, what we've done over the last month is just we have accelerated and we have great female auctioneers, we put them on the restroom and tell them that's your moment. And they were fantastic. You know, the, uh, uh, one of the most important moments of the six months, we sold a major work by Basquiat in our service in New York, auctioneer by our auctioneer Gemma. She was amazing on the restroom. And I'm sure her talent that night made a difference. Mm -hmm. What about in management as well? Of course, in management, that's the same thing. We are you know, at the executive level, more and more women. Uh, our president for America uh, at Christie's is a, is a woman, Bonnie mm. Brennan, you know, recently appointed. So it's, it's something we are, of course, uh, you know, uh, uh, seeing as a major objective, but it's always thanks to their merits. Tell me, Guillaume, you, you started the conversation by saying previously it was held back by supply. Now supply has come back on. Why are people willing to sell into Confidence. this market? Yeah. Confidence. Mm. What was lacking last year is that, you know, people were a little bit waiting just wanted to see what was happening in the economy, you know, in general, and especially in the art market, because it was a difficult moment. You know, we uh, discontinued our sales. We, we had to uh, restructure. We had to change our business model, going more towards online sales. Uh, and, and, and the clients on the selling side, I think, and it's normal, they wanted to see what, what, what was happening. What we proved last year, we proved that the demand was very strong and that the way we adapted to the new era the COVID and the post-COVID were right. And now people are more confident they are coming back and that's why we have this result this, this, uh, this six months. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Job openings are at a record high right now. There are various theories to explain the phenomenon, and it's become one of the biggest economic stories of the moment. There is a lot of anecdotal discussion about burnout, about people wanting a new lifestyle after the pandemic, using this moment to well, quit their jobs, buy something new. To get some perspective on this labour market churn and well, whether it's a real fundamental shift, and if it's really going to stay, we spoke with Steve Cadigan, who is former vice president of People at LinkedIn and has a new book out exploring the subject. It's called Workquake, embracing the aftershocks of COVID-19 to create a better model of working. Steve, who spent decades hiring in Silicon Valley, told us that, well, the tech sector has understood this reality for years. Companies need to actively battle for talent by creating a culture that is desirable for employees. Now, Steve is saying service industries. They're being forced to do the same. I absolutely think it will, but the, the, the wheels that put this in motion started well before the pandemic, where we saw over the course of the last seven years, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the length of time people were staying in jobs had moved from five to four years. And for the demographic, 25 to 35 year olds, it's come down to 2.8 years. So we've already been seeing this over the course of the last seven to 10 years that people are staying in jobs 
less than ever before. So I'm not surprised to see this, but I do think, and, and as you mentioned, the fact is we've had a year and a half to look at our life differently. Yeah. And in a world where you have more choice and where you see the world differently, I think many of us are gonna make different decisions and that's what we're starting to see play out right now with increasing resignations. What was the April number is the largest number of resignations in the United States yeah. since they've been tracking it for the last 20 years. Yeah, and, I, and I'm glad you bring that up because for a lot of years we here, we've been talking about sort of stagnant wage growth. And a lot of people sort of throw out these statistics from decades past, and they say one of the reasons why you had better wage, wage growth in previous generations was primarily because of the mobility of workers uh, was just a lot uh, more efficient than what it is today. Do you think that the companies themselves are going to respond in a way to this mobility that will actually lead to more sustainable wage growth? I think it's going to take some time, honestly, because, I mean, listen, this pandemic kind of came out of nowhere. We were all forced to learn how to lead people remotely. That's not a major in any business school that I know of, like how to, how to lead people remotely at scale. And we're learning as we go here. And so I think we're going to learn over time. But listen, I've been recruiting in Silicon Valley for the last 30 years, and it has been an absolute battle for talent. We've been trying to find software engineers like crazy, and that battle has now moved into industries and verticals, hospitality, mm. retail, restaurants, that have never faced this before. And I think their first knee jerk is gonna be, mm. oh, we need to do a signing bonus, or we need to do some kind of perk. And I think they're gonna soon realize that the long-term victory here is about creating a culture and creating an environment where people can do their best work. But we're still going through, I think, sort of a bit of a churn now where we're not sure what's going to happen, but people are making different decisions around where they want to be. I was just in Hawaii last week. Every restaurant worker I met was new. And, and a lot of the management staff said the people that were there are not coming back. So they're having to train new people, find new ways of recruiting. I think long term, that's going to benefit them. But we've faced this thing in Silicon yeah. Valley for a long time, and it forces you to have to be smarter and have to be more innovative around just wages. There's many other things that drive people to want to work for you. And I think right now what we've learned in the pandemic is people really value freedom and independence. I want to be able to go shopping for groceries yeah. on Tuesday morning instead of waiting on Sunday afternoon in the long lines at the grocery store. People are not wanting to give that up. Right. And they've had a taste of what that's like right now. So I think it's going to sustain some change over time, but I don't think we're going to see anything immediate in terms of new companies and new approaches until they learn and experiment and try to find new ways of doing it. I like that you went from... Because it feels that sometimes this whole YOLO effect is kind of an inequality discussion as well. Because, yeah, if you're in Silicon Valley, you're being paid the big bucks, you probably are allowed, and you're in demand, you're able to have this sort of flexibility. But if you're more in a lower-income job, you have less of that freedom to negotiate. But are you starting to see that? You say restaurant workers are all new. There's this theory that people aren't going back to work until perhaps some of the government protections and, and payments that you've been getting, the benefits, run out. Will the labor force still have that strength, that empowerment? when this support runs out? I, I, I think, do, do I think unemployment insurance contributes to some people delaying their reentry? I do in part, but I don't think that's the bigger picture. I think the bigger picture is people have had time to sit at home. Many of those uh, industries that you, you just mentioned, those people were laid off. And they're thinking, hmm, that's a vulnerable sector for me to continue my career. Maybe I should take advantage of a lot of this free education, a lot of the new online education opportunities that are being offered um, around the world and up upskill myself. 
better myself. That's why you see organizations, you mentioned it right at the start here, Chipotle. Chipotle is fascinating because they're in a highly competitive marketplace for talent. They're not a career destination. They're a career transition point. They know people that are going to work in their industry are not coming to there to work forever, but to work there while they find a job as an actor or while they finish their degree to go do yeah. something different. So what Chipotle said is, we know this isn't your desired destination. We're going to double down on you. We're going to give you free education, free degrees, no student loan, and you don't even have to stay here. And if you leave, you don't have to pay it back. We know this isn't your dream job, but we're okay with that. We want the best of the best that we can access. And so I think that kind of creativity is going to right. serve organizations well. And we will see, I think, more choice, yeah. at least for the next year, Steve. while we go through this transition period. That's it from What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every week from 4.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.